We are live. Welcome to Forward Guidance. I am really excited for this conversation. We're going to be talking about the pain in the bond market. We had a huge inflation print today, and a lot of interesting stuff is going on in the plumbing, and I cannot think of two better people to talk about it than Joseph Wang, a former Federal Reserve trader for the New York Fed, and George Goncalves, head of global macro strategy at MUFG Securities America. George and Joseph, great to have you here. Uh, guys, I want to just start by saying today at 8.30 in the morning, we had an 8.5% inflation print on the CPI, and one would think that would exert a ton of negative pressure on the bond market because you know fixed incomes that they're priced and not, you know inflation is sort of kryptonite to bonds. Uh, it, I think bonds are sort of very short. Uh, people have been shorting them. They're down so much that they actually had a little bit of a bounce. But uh, George, how about we start with you? How serious of a threat do you think inflation is to the bond market? Look, it's obviously uh, public enemy number one for the bond market. Uh, inflation erodes uh, you know, both purchasing power for the consumer, but for an investor that is locking in certain cash flows, if you know if you cannot uh, surpass the actual inflation rate, then you're going to have negative returns over, uh, over the life of owning that security or that bond. So inflation definitely is the main focus of, of bond investors. I, mean, I think today's number, uh, just to kind of go into it because you kind of teed it up, you know, there was you know just some mixed numbers with the core inflation coming in a little bit weaker, and and headlines still you know making a new all-time you know forty-plus year high. I think the market because it's been under so much so much pressure over the last couple of weeks that took it as a sigh of relief, and it wasn't it could have been worse, and therefore we're seeing a sort of kind of relief rally. Joseph. Yeah, I agree with George. I think the way you look at this is you have to think, first of all, what's in the price, right? So if you have this 8% number and you have people buying bonds, I guess the assumption is that, well, maybe the market was pricing in something worse. But then again, you know, something like this, it, it, my sense is that it looks like from the moves, there's not a lot of liquidity. You see a huge move in NASDAQ, for example, it was up 2%. Now it's basically all giving it back. You had a huge crush in the bond market too. Uh, you was going lower. So it, it could be just... Uh, low liquidity magnifying some some moves and also first i i, I like to think that thanks so much for come joining us george today um i've watched your interviews thanks many times you. and many other places so it's, it's a pleasure to be able to meet you yeah likewise no, good, good, good to be out with you guys so infl it's great to have you here george so inflation is enemy number one so the bond market's got enough to worry about itself but joseph you actually think that quantitative tightening will be very bad for the bond market and will exacerbate the, the downward pressures can you just sort of explain your, your thesis on that? And then I want to get George in because I know George has got a, a very different view. Yeah, sure. So I, I look at any asset as basically just supply and demand. Supply and demand is the ultimate fundamental for all financial assets. And if you look at the data, what you see is that you're going to have a record amount of supply uh, that has to be digested by non-fed people. And that supply comes from two places. One is net issuance. As everyone knows, we basically have forever trillion dollar deficits. If we're lucky, it'll probably go higher in the future. And so that itself is going to give you about net issuance about, let's say, 1.5 trillion or more this year and the following few years as well. And on top of that, you have quantitative tightening. And what quantitative tightening does is basically the Treasury issues debt to someone who's not the Fed takes that money and repays the Fed. So in a sense, it increases the amount of treasuries that the non-Fed people have to uh, digest. So if you add, let's say, $720 billion a year on top of that $1.5 trillion, you're getting a number that's like an extra, uh, so in total, about $2 trillion in net issuance that the market has to digest for the next three years. And that's a very, very big number. And I, I wonder, though, if the market is able to digest that. It will, but at what price? And um, if you look at who the people who have been buying treasuries in the past, you'll notice that, of course, it's the Fed. <laughs> I mean, they're not buying anymore. Um, foreigners were buying a lot. But uh, what you want to know is that foreigners, when they buy this, uh, they usually hedge the currency. Because let's say you, you have, let's say, 2.5% return on your bonds. That could be gone in a day when currency moves. So foreign investors usually have to hedge their currency risk. And that hedging cost goes in line with short-term interest rates. So when the Fed goes hiking rates aggressively, that FX adjusted yield that foreign investors are getting in treasuries goes down a lot. So I would expect foreign investors to be a little bit less interested 
And of course, in the past, banks have been buying a lot of treasuries in the past couple of years, and they've indicated in their calls that they're not really doing so. So um, it does look like that we might be in a position where we have to have more higher prices to attract buyers from different parts of the markets. And there are also some structural reasons about whether or not there's enough financing to do that. And I guess we'll talk about that later. Uh, a lot of uh, stuff that uh, Joseph gave you, George, but let's start with the basic premise that the Fed's balance sheet is about $9 trillion. To get back to normal, that would look something like $3 trillion over the next few years. A lot of those, the majority, are going to be treasuries. Can the market handle that supply? Is Do you agree with Joseph that that's going to be exert, exert further downward pressure on treasuries? Well, I mean, I guess I would first start off by saying the big premise here is that the Fed will really conclude the QT over a three-year period. In the prior you know, instance, they, they started QT in the middle of the hiking cycle, and now they're starting QT at the start of the hiking cycle. I've been calling this the double tightening, and that's going to exert a lot of pressure, and it has been, because the market's smart and the market has been forward-looking and has been pricing in. I mean, rates have basically doubled, uh, if you think about it, from long-term rates. You know, the 10-year was you know, sub-150 for a large part of the time last year, and we got close to you know, 280, almost close to 3%. And so, like we've we've discounted a lot already into the market. So that, that's number one. And number two, like we're assuming the Fed's going to be able to complete this program and do QT all the way to the end. And we saw that in 2017, they started it, they finished it in 2019, and only managed to shrink the balance sheet by roughly 700 billion. Now they want to shrink by three trillion. I'm I'm very skeptical they're going to be able to go all the way. I mean, if they can, of course, it's going to start to compete with other asset classes as well. And so that's where I think it, you know. The crowding out effect, yes, the Fed really supported the, the Treasury market, you know, both from a market functioning standpoint, but so by being the really the biggest buyer in the room, by them stepping away, you know, that extra money that was going to Treasuries before was going to corporates and to mortgages and to other fixed income assets. That in reverse should be like the real tightening of financial conditions is going to work through the channel of other markets are going to have to come down in order to finance the U.S. government. because. The one thing that I know is if, if treasuries get attractive enough and, and if stocks start going down, you know, people are going to move into fixed income just for safety. So I think like that dynamic is still out there. It hasn't played out yet because equities are still kind of hovering near highs. But if we get a more meaningful financial conditions tightening where stocks go down, credit goes down even further, that money is going to flow back to treasuries. So, so I think that's the equilibrium. But yes, if, if we did it for three years running, I, I think it's going to be hard to keep rates where they are. Joseph? No, I, I agree, actually. I, 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 you know, that's actually kind of my core view. Eventually, something is going to break and something always breaks, as, as George noted. Last time around, it, it was the repo market. And this time around, just based on how I see the mechanics of it, I believe what breaks is somewhere in the treasury market. And that really has to do uh, with where banks have been investing over the past few years. So, Another thing that QT does is that, as we all know, it decreases the level of reserves in the system. Reserves are just bank cash held by banks. So as QT goes on, banks have fewer cash balances. The markets that get hit are those that were benefiting from those cash balances. So the last time around, they were dumping hundreds of billions in repo. This time around, they were dumping uh, trillions into treasuries and agency MBS. So by that logic, sometime I would expect something would blow up. And when that does, you know, there, there could be a very strong risk-off reaction, like, like George mentioned. Um, but, but I'm still thinking about this, though. I mean, let's say there is a big risk-off reaction. If you have forever issuance, like trillions of dollars every year, eventually that, that seems to me that rates will have to go higher simply because supply is so much higher. And there, there's reason to think that there's just not enough financing to, to absorb all that treasuries, at least in the short term. So you guys have a different view. Uh, let's put this chart up, which, George, uh, thank you so much for making this. Uh, this is the 30-year trend line in long-term bonds, the 10-year treasury note. And it's gyrated up, gyrated down, but the overall trend has been down. And you've drawn these trend lines to sh uh, and indicating that whenever it gets out of a standard deviation, it's sort of due for a correction. So, for example, in... March and April 2020, it was due for a correction. Yields were due for upwards. Now we're sort of due for a uh, correction downwards. And I don't want to say due, but 
basically uh, we would be out of to for 10 year note yields or 30 year bond yields to go higher would mean that we would break a trend. Uh, George, why is this significant to you? What's the importance of a trend? Well, this is a secular trend that's been going on for multi-decades, right? So this bull cycle has been with us since the Fed, ironically, killed off inflation in, in the early 80s. I mean, we had some you know, uh, oscillations in, in the mid-80s, then through 1987, there was a pretty big move in rates up until the, that stock market crash as well. And then you know, from 1989 onwards, as rates got much more stable and also the financial markets got more evolved and and started to use more repo markets and there was a, a, a need for treasury collateral over time rates kept going lower and lower and lower and there was also you know the the, the more structural features like globalization and and you know the us had just won the peace dividend and it being the only superpower all of these big structural forces really benefited you know the us markets and saw capital come our way in the in the, in the late 90s asia you know, realized that they need excess reserves. So they started to build up FX reserves, which were primarily in dollars. So all of these big trends helped push rates lower over time. And, and the point of this chart is like, it's, it's, is that since that, you know, that kind of turn lower in rates that's been going on for you know, uh, multiple decades, we've rarely broken a higher high. So, so or, or lower, lower, I guess you should, you should look at it from a price to, to standpoint. It's, you know, you see the trends going lower, the, the next high never beats the prior high. And, and that, that's basically happened all the way up until 2018. 2018 started to look like rates were about to go. And then that, that culminated with one of the worst quarters in uh, high yield issuance and credit issuance and really you know, almost a 20% correction in the equity market in Q4 2018. And you know, the 10-year got north of 3% and then rallied all the way back down to you know, the COVID lows. And so and this is all history, but it does give you some sort of bearings of like, you know, how extremes have things have gotten. And when they do get extreme, they usually bounce back. Right now, we're close to the three standard deviation mark. We've never been at the three standard deviation mark over this, you know, multi-decade daily regression-based chart. It doesn't mean that it has to hold just because mathematically that's the way it works out. However, I mean, it is, you know, due for a pullback because if it doesn't, then truly this is a paradigm shift of epic proportions, which I've been telling our, our, our investors as well, that you know, if this were to start to kind of go sideways, it'll start looking more like the Japanese rates of the early 2000s, where they had a massive rally and then traded sideways. And I mean, it doesn't mean that rates have to like go back up to 5% or 7%. It just means that you know, maybe the bond bull cycle is over. Joseph? That's a really good chart. I really like that chart for, for you guys. It's the blue line that we finally broken through, right? The blue yeah, line it's, it's, to the standard deviation. Yeah. And I, I think that one thing that is happening, though, so there might potentially be this regime change just based upon what some of the politics that we're, we're seeing right now. One, for example, globalization, which you know we've been doing for the past few decades, seems to be reversing. It looks like everyone is going to have to have their own supply chains. Looks like the world might bifurcate between, like, uh, let's say, a Western bloc and uh, the bloc with uh, Russia and China and maybe India. So that means structurally less efficiency, higher prices, and maybe people who are accumulating FX reserves, like like they were in the past, might be a bit more concerned about, uh, say, accumulating dollars because. Uh, the U.S. and the Euroland has shown that they're willing to confiscate that if you don't do what you're told. And nobody likes to be under that kind of threat. So th there could be potentially be a regime change. And if there's not, yeah, we could totally go back down. But if there is a regime change, then maybe this marks a, a change in, in the direction of the bond yields. Joseph, there's kind of a lifeline that people familiar uh, like you two with the, the plumbing of, of the Federal Reserve, a lifeline for the Treasury market, and that would be the reverse uh, repo. There's about $1.6, $1.7 trillion worth of money in this thing that could buy Treasuries and take up supply. However, there are a lot of caveats. Joseph, you, you recently on your website, fedguy.com, uh, you wrote an article called Draining the RRP which talks about the myriad problems uh, with this $1.7 trillion. What, what were those problems? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So I think what happens is that, let's see, if you're a Fed official on the FOMC, 
you're looking at, let's say, $1.7 trillion in the RP, and you're thinking that there's a lot of excess cash in the system. And because you believe that, you're going to say, we can do super aggressive QT. And as you all remember, last time around, the maximum we got to was $50 billion a month. This time, they want to do $95 billion a month, so twice as much. I think they think they can do that because what they're seeing in the RP. Uh, but I don't. What I think they don't realize is that it doesn't actually flow that easily from the RP and into into let's say uh, the broader markets to support quantitative tightening. So money can come out of the RP to support coupon treasuries. Now, just talking about coupons, they can support bills easily through one of two ways. One is that let's say if you're a money market fund, you take your money outside of the RP and you lend it in the repo market to a leveraged investor like hedge fund and the hedge fund takes that money and buys a treasury coupon. That's one way. Another way is if you're a cash investor and you're parking your cash in a money market fund, then you take your money out of the money market fund and use it to buy cash treasuries. The money market fund then takes money out of the RP and, and gives it to the cash investor so that the cash investor has money. Now, both of these paths, they're not really smooth actually. Uh, the reason being that there's something called balance sheet constraints in the financial system. Do, do you have uh, my, that chart, uh, Jack? Yes, I don't know exactly which one it is, but yes. It's the first, uh, the second first one. one. This one? Yeah, this one, the second one. Second one. Yes, this one. So the way that this works is that... Um, wait, wait, actually, Joseph, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say a few things. So, uh, so you worked at the money market desk on the Fed. So this is your specialty within the, your specialty of central banking. Yeah. And then a coup, uh, money market funds can only buy short-term short-term dated paper that doesn't pay a coupon. So it will have an effective yield of 1%. It actually, you're just buying it for 99 and you redeem it for $100. It's like a zero coupon bond, but it's really short-term. So they can't buy uh, things that are longer than what, 365 days or, right? Uh so it's it's a kind of special for treasury. So technically speaking, we can just say that money market funds just invest in short data things that mature within a year. Uh, strictly speaking, they can actually buy longer dated coupon treasuries, except that they run other, other constraints. It's got a weighted average life, but that we don't need to get into that. We can just say they buy bills okay, <laughs> or lend the repo market. <laughs> and there are so, some ways they can get around this via repo uh, and so, cash treasuries, but, but this is what you're getting into. So basically they can take money out of the RP and lend into repo. When they, the way that this works, the way that the pipes work is that they lend to a dealer, a securities dealer, uh, you know, like a JPM securities dealer or something like that, who then relends it to a hedge fund. Now that though that that contraction where a dealer borrows from someone, lends to someone, those are the main pipes of the financial system. That's where money flows from cash investors into the leveraged community to buy coupon treasuries. An interesting thing, though, in, you see in this chart is that pipe where dealer repo borrowing is actually narrower than it was in 2008. It used to be three trillion, now it's one and a half trillion. So this is due to regulatory changes where the authorities don't like dealers doing a lot of business. They like them to have smaller balance sheets. But at the same time, the amount of treasuries in the system has grown a lot. And so even if you have a lot of hedge funds wanting to buy treasuries on with repo loans, they're not going to get, be able to get enough money simply because the pipes are not wide enough. And I, I've always looked at this chart and I, and I thought it looks, just looks amazing to me how balance sheet has become so much scarcer. I don't know, George, I mean, you have a lot of deep experience in, in being on the institutional side. What do you think when you look at, uh, let's say, how dealer balance sheets are just smaller today than they were back then? Yeah, no, listen, um, um, if first and foremost, there's only a few people in this world that I know that are you know, as competent as, as you, Joe, in, in terms of describing this stuff. So you know, kudos to you. And this is a great chart. Um, look, at the end of the day, there's been a lot of regulatory changes post financial crisis as well. There's been, a, a, you know, a lot of actual end user buyers of treasuries that are just buy and hold. And that, again, also looks very similar to what the experience that Japan went through uh, as it kind of morphed into more of a local domestic bond market. Now, I've been saying for years that the U.S. bond market is going to have to move away from being a foreign-based market more towards domestic, and that's been slowly happening. Uh, and, and I think that's why we're seeing like this kind of divergence here potentially. Uh, but I mean, I think overall, um, 
you know, it, it does kind of speak to a bigger issue, which is this idea of on the run treasuries versus off the run treasury. So there's that, that to mention, which we can get into in a second, but to kind of like close the loop on what Joe was mentioning about the RRP and, and not, you know, and the frictions that could happen as the Fed, you know, sheds securities or just does not reinvest them. That, that process, I, I agree with Joe, is, is not going to be as smooth and linear as people think it is, where it's, it's a natural handoff. There's going to be interim steps and, and, it's just, and, and these are large numbers we're talking about. Like we're talking about $1.7 trillion. Uh, a decent amount of it could be absorbed because there is a high demand for, for treasury collateral or T-bill collateral. Uh, so there's a real high demand for, for short-term treasuries. But once you start to get beyond that, then it gets more into investor preference and, and who wants to buy what at what price and what yield. And so I think, yeah, as we get further into QT, again, we haven't even started yet, but once it's put in place and it's really going in the second half of this year and early part of next year, then that's when it starts to kind of crowd out these balance sheets and investors are going to have to make a decision on where to buy. And, 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 and I think ultimately that will come at the expense of other asset classes. But until then, it's, it's going to be more friction. I think I, I saw that you mentioned in your presentation, there's a lot of captive buyers in treasuries. And I think that's a really important point. Um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of people buy treasuries not because of their views on growth or inflation, but because they kind of have to by regulation or uh, some other some other um, self-imposed or publicly opposed constraint. The crazy thing is some of the it seems like the government has been manufacturing to some extent demand for treasuries by giving them high preference for let's say bank regulations or even GSC regulations. So there's a, there's a lot of buying that happens there just because people have to. Sure. It's well, I mean, you, you need some sort of building blocks, right? And so our system is built on a risk-free capital based system, but you know, you, you need to have end users to buy all this paper at the same time. So I think it's definitely that balance going on. It's been you know, really post 2009, I think really exacerbated that. So Joseph, this is a, 20-year chart. I want to uh, I want to take a look at what you're seeing this year. Uh, first of all, why is there more repo lending than borrowing? Oh no, so this is something different. So uh, oh. just to get around the um, balance sheet constraints, the pipe constraints that I was talking about, the private sector has done some innovation. They've created this new product on sponsored repo, which is a more regulatory friendly type of repo, which is gaining in popularity. But uh, you can see just from the size of the issuance compared to the volumes done here, that it's just not going to be enough. Mm. And so if you, if a, in the real world, a pipe isn't big enough and there's a lot of water that has to go through the pipe, either the water will go someplace else. In this case, that's the money in the uh, uh, um, RRP, or it will burst the pipe. Joseph, which do you, do you think is more likely? So I think what will happen is that the, the treasury market probably will just hit an air pocket like you have an issuance but you just won't have enough so the levered community will not have enough financing to participate as much as they would like and you'd have to look for cash buyers and it's hard to see when cash buyers will step in because when you're raising rates aggressively like what the fed is doing by the end of the year you're going to get like two percent just by holding your money uh short term right why would you be buying let's say a 10-year treasury for two and a half percent where you could just get two percent holding in short term. So uh, that to me suggests that you'd have to have the curve steeper quite a bit to be able to have real money investors step in. I, 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 could you explain that that logic a bit? And, um, and then I also want to ask George, just uh, could if you can only buy uh, um, not, you know, not zero coupon securities, could there be such a flood of, of money buying zero coupon securities that that actually push, pushes short-term yields lower? Uh, or is there just sort of an arbitrage condition because the Fed has uh, indicated before guidance that it will be uh, you know 1.25% uh, by December or, or something like that uh, so that just no one would ever buy yields there? And it, it's just sort of inert capital that can't go to any sort of risk assets, including treasuries. Uh, George, how about, how about you take that? So I'll answer your last question first. I mean, there is a definitely a you know a kind of perception or view out there. There's a lot of money parked at the Fed that it's just you know it's very convenient to park the money at the Fed. It's paying you an interest, and so there are less kind of investment decisions to take into account because you know the Fed is money good and they're the highest quality counterparty that you can face. And the, on top of that, the collateral that, that you're that you're using are 
treasuries. So there's definitely an element of that potentially going on. Um, but I also think that rates are just not high enough yet. So as rates get higher, I think you'll see that. But then there is a special role that, again, these treasuries, you know, as, as kind of Joe's been alluding to, the role of you know them being used as collateral for repo transactions or for derivative contracts. I mean, there's a, a special role, and, and, and the lower the duration security, the better they are, because you know, these T bills as you know zero coupon securities, the prices will fluctuate, but they're not going to really you know, lose as much as a long-term treasury could potentially lose. And so there's this high demand for these short-term T bills. So much so that if you actually look at how treasury T bills have been trading relative to like Fed funds rate or, or the OIS, which is like a version of a Fed funds rate over time, these, you know, these uh, short-term rates should track each other closely, but they're not. So T-bills are actually trading under where the Fed is going to potentially hike to. So that means that there's such a high demand that the yields for these short-term treasuries are actually lower than where the Fed will be if they actually deliver all these hikes as priced in, will be in like six you know, months, uh, one year's time. Thank you. Yeah, George, you explained what I, what I was trying to say. We've got a question from uh, Balu who asks, how does uncertainty about inflation affect repo and margin requirements? That's a great question. And I, I might just add, how does uncertainty about the level of bank reserves or uncertainty about the level of the Fed funds rate affect repo and margin requirements? I want to ask both of that to you, but, but how about we start with you, Joseph? Well, I mean, margin requirements, I think if you have a lot of inflation, or inflation is say is uncertainty. You could have a volatile asset, so your collateral values could vol could vary a lot. And if that's the case, maybe you need slightly more margin. I mean, it, so inflation is is a nominal thing, and asset prices are nominal, right? So it, I think it will feed in just because it makes the underlying nominal values of the collateral, um, I think, more volatile. So um, that's that's how I think it would it would. I mean, in terms of just broaderly in the rates, I think which one of the things you see is that. Uh, rate fall has gone higher, and you could think of that as possibly because you have let more uncertainty as to what inflation would be. Thus, you also have more uncertainty as to the Fed's reaction function, and maybe that that's a manifestation of that as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add, I mean, and kind of Joe has mentioned it throughout his pieces as well, is that there's a, there's also we're capturing illiquidity too of the of the bond market as all of this is going on, and people are trying to understand, you know, is inflation really peaking? Is it going to be permanent? And, and and that also kind of adds to the the rate volatility that's that's now being embedded into the into the markets and and if this were to persist for long periods of time, then yeah, you can see uh, potential changes to to margins and, and and Joe's right, it's 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 a nominal world and so if everything it, mechanically that's how it should work, uh, but it really comes down to vol adjustments. I mean, if if the rates market were to stabilize, and actually start to head lower again or just even stabilize, uh, then vol should come off and then that should not really change. Yeah, kind of risk management. I think George's um, liquidity point is super important. Jack, do you have uh, the last chart? I, I have a portrait of what we could think of as one of the, no, the, the one out. Yes. This one is one. Up. Yeah, yeah. So one of the ways you can, so people talk about deteriorating liquidity in the treasury market. One of the ways you can look at this is that just say the average daily volume done in the cash treasury market hasn't really changed all that much over the past 20 years. It's less than doubled, but the amount of treasures outstanding has risen more than seven times. So you know, by definition, that's deteriorating liquidity. The only pushback I would give on that, Joe, is that as you know, in the, the treasury market's an upside down pyramid. Um, we have you know, only so many on the run treasuries that trade very actively and a futures market and a derivatives market, which is a whole other level of complexity but at the more you know at the foundation level it's primarily the 10-year the 30-year the five-year the two-year these are the big benchmark securities that are issued every month and those are the ones that will take most of the liquidity and those you know represent roughly two to three hundred billion dollars relative to a 30 trillion dollar market so like it's like this massive upside down pyramid of you know, like I think it's a 0.1%, whatever that is, it's a really small number that's controlling a whole marketplace, largely because of this whole on the run, off the run dynamic, where a lot of these older treasuries just really just kind of become buy and hold. That's a really good point. That's very important to keep in mind. And I might add, George, what, what about sort of the rise of ETFs or options on ETFs? Like if someone bought a call option on TLT yesterday, is that going to show up in the blue line? 
No, this is this is cash securities, not like a, an ETF. You can consider like a, like a derivative of exposure to the treasury market or any asset class, right? So um, it would not. This is primarily just the uh, institutional and bank uh, dealers and primary dealers activity in the um, treasury market. Right, got it, um, George. You've got some fantastic charts on what interest rates typically do going into the first Fed hike. So we've already had the first Fed hike. The uh, Fed funds rate is now at 25 basis points, but there's been a huge repricing all across the curve. And in the black line is is what we see in, in March 22. This is the two-year treasury. And the other faint, thin dotted lines are previous hiking cycles. Why, uh, why is it so significant that the two-year treasury has risen so much more than previous cycles? What does that indicate to you? Well, first, you know, starting points matter. And so rates have been so low and the Fed dropped the whole, you know, term structure close to zero. Even, you know, 10-year rates got to 30-some basis points during the COVID low and, and spent, you know, under 1% during 2020. So we've had very low rates for the last 18 months, 24 months. And so... You know, with the Fed, you know, sounding even more hawkish, and uh, I, lo I love the fact that your your, your show is called Forward Guidance. Cause that's what the Fed you know, really. That's their main tool, and Joe, I'm sure, will, will vouch for me for that. That their main tool is forward guidance, because the market really prices in, and then the Fed delivers. It's what the market prices in more so than actual Fed hikes themselves. And so the market got this message like, well, the Fed's going to be super hawkish. You know, we've been kind of sleeping at the wheel here and repriced quickly in the last basically three months. Which led to the worst you know, quarter in the bond market's history. Now the question is, I've been calling this you know, back to the future tightening, where the market knows eventually the Fed has to deliver. But what if the market overshot and the Fed doesn't deliver as much? That's my view. My view is that the market's doing the tightening for the Fed. Therefore, at some point, either something does break outside in other markets, which will then either turn this you know, this lower. Uh, because this is, you know, really unsustainable if it keeps going at this pace. Right. And history is definitely on your side, George, in terms of over the past decade, there have been very, very few times where the forward rate curve accurately predicted rates. Rates consistently undershot not just the Fed's own forward guidance, the dot, dot plot, but what the market was actually pricing in. Joseph, why is this time different? Why why is George uh, George's empirical argument looking at history, uh, why is this sort of the the 1% time that it, it's it's a new paradigm shift? Uh, I think one, one thing you can think about is that the Fed has this new framework, right? They're not going to tighten until they see inflation sustainably above 2%. And I think a corollary to that is that when they do tighten, they're going to have to tighten more quickly. And so it's possible that this this is what the new framework would, would suggest, um, just you know, low rates for a while, and then a more aggressive tightening. So, I, I I don't know. I'm I'm of the view that the Fed just messed up, but you could also think of it that it's maybe just a reflection of a new paradigm, uh, of their new framework. Sorry. I'm I'm definitely of the view that the Fed overeased for sure, and I've been very vocal, you know, publicly and, and everywhere else. I can you know get that view out there. Uh, they, they did too much QE, and they were staying on hold for too long, and 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 really fell into the trap of thinking that this time was going to be the same like last time where we had rates low and inflation not you know perking up as much as it's done. And so this inflation binding constraint really caught the Fed off guard. And and like and, it, and we could all be, you know, Monday morning morning quarterbacking. I mean, I, I also got that view wrong too, just to be very public about it. I thought that inflation would would, would kind of stabilize around five, six percent. And of course here we are, you know, north of eight percent. So you know we we clearly you know you know, are potentially in a paradigm shift. It's not guaranteed it's going to happen. I do think that history will be on my side, as you say, Jack. But we don't know, right? I mean, no one knows the future, and that includes the Fed. And so, I, like, literally, they thought that, you know, the inflation framework, the, the average inflation framework, would allow them time to see this coming, and then they can ease into it. But in fact, that's the volatility, because you, no one knows the future. And so you get these massive moves where inflation is super high. They're going to have to front load these hikes, which then runs the risk of, pushing us into a recession. So that's not really good policy either. So the market's already front-loaded the hikes. I think the uh, Fed funds rate for December 2022 is about, what, t uh, 12 hikes from, uh, no, so, sorry, um, eight yeah. hikes from here, about 2.3%. So eight more hikes from here. And then by December 2023, it's 12 more hikes from here, about 3.2%. 
George, do you think that the federal, you know, how are you, how are you weighing the odds that the Federal Reserve will get to that level? You know, do you think they'll get to 1%? Where, where do you think they'll sort of stall out? I mean, look, let's see when they deliver QT next month in May. Let's see if they do deliver that 50 basis points, which most likely is what's going to happen now, given where we are. And then if they deliver another 50 basis point. And at that point, we're starting to look up at 150, maybe potentially 2% Fed funds, uh, actually like real delivered. Now it's now it's actually statutory in place. The Fed has, has codified it. It's actually 2%, not just the market saying it's going to be 2%. When that happens, that sets off a whole chain reaction of other events for indexed products and for securities that are based on the Fed. And when that happens, that's when I, f- I feel like you're going to get the more meaningful tightening of monetary conditions. And then, you know, it's a matter of timing, like how strong is the U.S. economy and will it be able to handle that? If it can, then potentially they can go higher than 2%. But I- I'm-, I'm still skeptical. I think to George's point, the last time in 2018, when the Fed got to about 2%, everything just kind of melted down, right? And they had to do a, a 180 and emergency start cutting rates, like hugely, even though in 2019, even though they had originally planned to keep raising them. Does, so Joseph, uh, why is it your view that you think the Federal Reserve will hike much more than the 3.2% terminal rate? I, I've heard you say that you think the 10-year could go to 4%. I think so, yeah. But Again, my core view is sometime along the way, something's going to blow up in the bond market just because of just, I don't think the system can handle so much QT, uh, especially when a lot of the marginal buyers in the past seem to be uh, out, uh, or at least to, to more exempt. So in that scenario, I think you could easily see um, tenure up to 4%. And if you don't, if you have something that goes up steadily, you can give the Fed to room to gradually hike because nothing breaks. And so let's take a look at this chart, which is the 210 spread, again, using George's framework of going into the first uh, Fed hike. This has just been an incredible tightening of financial conditions as measured by the 10 2 spread. Doesn't even come close to any of the previous hiking cycles. I think a week or two ago, we were in inversion in the 10 and 2 spread. I believe we no longer are. George, how worried should investors be about uh, an inverted yield curve? You know, typically it predicts a recession. Do you think a recession is, is in the cards? I've, I've increased my odds of recession probabilities. Uh, a number of other folks have as well. Um, this is a global macro environment, which no one's been used to. Business cycles are going to be shorter and much more volatile. And we're trying to get our sea legs while, while this all is happening, coming out of a pandemic, no less, right? So uh, it's, I mean, it's not guaranteed that we have to fall into a recession, but it really comes down to how aggressive the Fed wants to be at, at really you know, fighting off inflation. And if I'm wrong and they do bring up rates to 3%, and if Joe's right, we get that final big move to 4% on the 10-year, I mean, that, that, that will set you know, the whole market you know, in, a, in a pretty big downward, downward trajectory, not just bond markets, but every, every market. And, it, and I, my view is that before we even get to that point, you know, investors are looking on the other side. That's why the curves were inverting, because the markets were like, well, the more the Fed hikes now, the more they're going to have to ease later because they're going to make a policy mistake. And so that I think the narrative will still hold. I mean, the curve is now re-steepened. There has been a, you know, just kind of a, a, a realignment of positioning. But I do think that if we were to keep pushing rates higher uh, and then something else breaks, not just the bond market, that's what that's the only kind of curtailing feature that can actually prevent rates from really expl- exploding higher. But at 4%, you know, it, that's close to like, I think, four standard deviations. So, I mean, it's possible. We've seen how commodity markets have gone unhinged at times. I just think that the, you know, the treasury market, you know, given the institutional background and captive buyers, that there's going to be, you know, a, a, at some point where there's going to be, it's going to be cheap enough as a value play that the market would stabilize way before that. But if I'm wrong, then it's going to set off a whole other chain reaction that I don't think that, you know, our policymakers want to see. Oh, and, you know, ahead, Joseph, if you guys remember, just uh, last week, I think Dudley was on TV saying that the Fed is basically hiking because it thinks that the equity market is is too high. And if the equity market doesn't go down, it'll keep hiking. What I mean, do you, do you think that's actually how people, the current FOMC would, would be thinking about this? Like maybe they want this to happen? I mean, look, um, when you've had multiple years of up 20% on the S&P and and if you look at just you know where uh, you know household wealth as a percentage of disposable income 
all the equity metrics, if you look at the durable goods consumption and how it was so closely aligned with the increase in the market cap of the S&P, the U.S. economy is levered to the stock market and the Fed knows it. So like this literally is the mechanism of financial conditions tightening that has to happen in order to kind of take steam out of the system. And then you'll get the inflation come back down again, but it probably ends up resulting with a with a market correction and potentially the risk of falling into a recession. Because I, I just don't see the U.S. economy being able to weather 20, 30 percent down the S&P and you know go into a, a soft landing. Yeah, I agree. It does seem like that that's the tool they would, would be used. It's basically the one that will work the fastest and they have probably the more control over. Uh, uh, George, we got to let you go soon. Uh, ho- hopefully, you know, Joseph, you can stay on for a few, few more minutes. But uh, George, my final question uh, is, what is your view on the long end? It, based on your, your premises, it, it kind of sounds like you're, you're bullish. And then also, how, are, how, do, how bullish are you on the long end compared to previous periods? You know, I, I know you were uh, quite bullish in 2019, and that, that, that played out uh, well, are you more or less bullish now? Is is it you know greater vo- volatility in terms of the outcomes? H- how are you thinking about this as a trade? So I'm st- I'm still kind of hashing things out. I, I do think that you know with each year that passes us and the fact that you know we are now at these new extremes that you know strategists and, and investors alike have to really entertain the idea that perhaps it is a paradigm shift. So you know, my convictions are lower than they were in like you know 2018, 2019 or even back in, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, when we saw that big rise in rates towards 4%, we rallied all the way back down to one and a half. So I'm not sure if we get a repeat of that, but I do think that, you know, there is, you know, as a dollar cost averaging, you know, that's the way to kind of approach this at this point, that if, you know, we saw just in the the last 24 hours, a pretty big move higher in rates and then a pretty big move lower as well. So I think the market's trying to test what the upper limits are. Uh, convictions are kind of low here, uh, but I do think that, you know, as long as the we don't go back to um, what we saw during the 1960s, 1970s, where rates start to head higher and they just never look back, you know, if we get more of like a Japan-style scenario where rates go sideways, we could very well be looking at a world where rates will be between 1% and 3% for the next 5, 10 years, and we're just going to have to just trade those ranges. But we'll see. It's, it's, it's early days, and it's definitely a fascinating time. Definitely a fascinating time and fascinating uh, hearing your thoughts, George. Thanks so much. Uh, people can follow you on at Bond Strategist on Twitter. And of course, you are the, the head of uh, U.S. Macro Strategy at MUFFG uh, Securities America. George, thank you so much. Joseph, uh, you stay for And a few if more you're minutes. an institutional investor, definitely reach out to George, right? If you're an institutional investor. There you go. Thanks, Joe. Yo, great, great to connect. Hopefully one day we can meet in person and Jack as well. So thanks for setting this up. Thanks so much, George. Thanks, George. Uh, Joseph, can you stay for a few few more minutes? Sure, of course. Okay, great. We got some uh, a few questions from the audience. Dylan wants to know: Will the Fed weigh equity returns year to date when determining how fast to tighten monetary policy? Uh, you know, thanks. What? <laughs> uh, but Dylan, is, is how, how closely is the Federal Reserve paying attention to the stock market? Very closely. I mean, just listen to what Dudley said and what George mentioned, right? This is a major pillar of monetary, how monetary policy actually affects the real economy. It's through the stock portfolios of the American public. So if you want inflation to be lower, you got to reduce demand. One way to do that is to reduce net worth. If your stock portfolio is smaller, you have less money to buy stuff. That's less demand. That's less inflation. So, you know, President Dudley of Former President Dudley of the New York Fed has already spelled this out to you. You guys don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Joseph, uh, it's interesting. I was just speaking with Urian Timmer, uh, head of macro strategy at Fidelity, and we were looking at some of his charts on risk premia, credit risk premia, and equity risk premia. And the, the you know even though financial conditions have tightened, it's all been because of a rise in the risk-free rate. The two-year, the 10-year, the 30-year credit spreads have barely budged and equity risk premia are actually lower than they were uh, at the beginning of the year. So the, the market is still in risk. The market is uh, fighting the Fed, Joseph. Oh, they're going to lose. <laughs> they're going to lose so badly. <laughs> uh, I've been telling you guys this since the beginning of the year. And, you know, we've gone down a lot since then, bounced a bit, but I, listen, we're still too high. Yeah. 
All right, well, I got a few more questions. I uh, just want to say quickly, don't forget to subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. Joseph and I are here every Tuesday. We've got tons of interviews on the BlockWorks macro channel, so definitely do that. Joseph, we got an interview from actually uh, Byron, who writes the BlockWorks newsletter. Is there anything inherently inflationary about bank reserves, or does the Federal Reserve want to get re reserves down just to lower asset prices? No, there's nothing inherently inflationary about bank reserves. Um, bank reserves are just cash held at the Fed. Um, I, I think there's a, a temptation to think that, you know, because there are a lot of reserves that, you know, that increases the money supply. The thing is, you have to understand who holds those. Banks hold those. And so banks are not going to go buy cars or buy houses, right? What do banks buy? They buy financial assets. And so you see them buying tremendous amounts of treasuries and agency MBS. So if it does cause inflation, it causes inflation in treasury securities, that is to say lower rate, lower yields, which is what which is the whole point of QE. Hmm. And when you do QT, you reverse this. Okay. And Joseph, can we just walk through a few more points from your article on draining the RRP? You got to, uh, I'll just read your last sentence. The QT time bomb is ticking. When it goes off, there will be emergency liquidity operations, and we will move to the yield curve control end game. When what does it look like when the QT time bomb goes off? You know, is that the thirty year at four percent, at five percent, and then what sort of emergency liquidity operations are you envisioning? So I don't think it's about the level and so much as the volatility. You just have to think back to what happened in the repo market uh, in uh, twenty nineteen. So. Again, repo, super, super liquid market, trillion dollars done every day. It's really not supposed to break. It's supposed to be super liquid, and it did break. And you had repo rates shoot up actually intraday five times what it was the day before. So that's the kind of volatility that I would expect if something breaks. Basically, you just hit an air pocket. You have a lot of people selling or a lot of supply coming in. You just don't have enough people buying at that time. So. If that happens, that is a systemic risk issue, and that would force immediate action by the Fed, just like, like the Fed came in when the repo market broke. So you'd have emergency liquidity operations, like March 2020, where the Fed would come in and buy a lot. Uh, the, the fact is that if you have a debt market, like the treasury market that grows by trillions every year, eventually it's just going to grow too big and too difficult to manage. If you have, like George was mentioning, some some the on the runs, the newly issued are liquid. But what if you have off the runs and you need to sell them, like what happened in March 2020? The market is simply too big and it can't handle uh, it, the the pipes. The liquidity is just not there to support such a large market. And the ultimate answer to this has to be some sort of public intervention, yield curve control, like they have in in Japan. Uh, I, I don't see any way around it. We might not get there right away, but that, that to me is the ultimate uh, end game for the, for the rates market. So some viewers know what repo lending is. It's a short-term loan that's collateralized. You, you sell something, then you buy it back. Why is repo rates spiking so harmful to the financial system? And also, if this, the QT time bomb goes off, you say repo rate spike. What is the collateral there? Is it a mortgage-backed no, security? No, no, no. So is it a that's what happened treasury? last time. That's what happened last time. I'm not saying it won't happen this time. Repo rates will not spike this time. That's not no longer possible. Okay, sorry, sorry. Repo rates will no longer spike, but then the it's, treasury, it's just, yields, treasury yeah, yields like, will go up, and yeah. it's not the level; it's the volatility. Yeah, yeah, like that. So let's say the five tens, five seven tens, something like that. So I, that's what I think is, is a fragility point this time around. And, you know, it's it's bad because, well, I mean, that's that's a whole lot of mark-to-market well, mark -market losses. A vast majority of people hold treasury debt in some form. And if you have big moves on the margin, then all their holdings get marked down to that. That's enormous amounts of net losses that they immediately bear, which might force margin calls, might force portfolio rebalancing. Uh, basically, it's a huge hugely destabilizing event that would uh, disrupt the markets, all markets. And mm -hmm. Joseph, if I had to ask you, you know, you're not like an investment strategist, but if I had to ask you, you said the, 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 the Fed will take down the stock market and the bond market, which do you think will suffer more, the bond market or the, the stock market? Uh, so the bond market, it's a lot 
it's difficult. It depends upon you know duration and things like that. So you know, if you if you're really cautious, you would just stay short in a money market fund. And you won't have anything to lose. And in stocks as well, I mean, you have to look across sectors. If you look at the tech stocks, they're doing quite poorly. If you look at things like energy or if you look at utilities or consumer staples, they're doing very well. There's some kind of rotation going on. So it does depend on a lot of other cross currents. Uh, I mean, for me, I, I own a lot of energy stocks and basic materials, and they've been doing very well. Um, so there are places you could hide and actually do very well, and there are places you want to avoid. I think things that are sensitive to interest rates are the ones that are doing very poorly right now. So, uh, you know, long duration things. And there's a perception in the market that tech is also long duration. So they sell them as well. Hmm. Joseph, tomorrow we start to get earnings from uh, banks, you know, bank, commercial banks that are reporting their earnings. Is there anything that you'll be looking for that? indicate something about the health of the economy or the relationship between commercial banks and the Fed? Uh, you know, how much lending do you think we're going to see and, and why is that important? So you're exactly right, Jack. So the most important thing you want to see about commercial banks is if they're lending. Because when commercial banks make loans, they create money. And when there's more money in the, in the economy, then there's, you know, then asset prices can go higher. Wages can go higher. Maybe it's nominal, but you know, for everyone, for all intents and purposes, nominal is what matters to everyone's life, right? So, you want to see you want to see healthy loan growth, and I my, I expect that that would happen. They've been hinting on that uh, the past uh, quarter, and also when you have an inflationary environment, you're naturally going to have more demand for money. Real rates are also still very low, so it makes sense to borrow. So, I think that would be a very good barometer to, to the health of the economy. One th other thing that I would be focusing on is whether or not banks are still buying treasuries and agency MBS because they've been a big marginal buyer for the past two years. And if we're doing QT, we're going to need to have new buyers. We want to see if the banks have decided to come back at these levels and yields or if they're still staying out. Mm. Uh, Joseph, so the QT time bomb is ticking quantitative tightening time bomb is ticking what do you how, how soon do you think before it goes off and and when does quantitative tightening start you know we've got early may is the next fomc meeting but will it not start until june or july remind us what the guidance has been it's going to start in may is what they're saying that's that's what they strongly hinted at um though expectation is that there's going to be a ramp up period so as we know the maximum is going to be 95 billion dollars a month it's not going to start right away maybe it's a ramp up over three months so maybe we start at let's say 60 70 80 and then we end at 95. i'm not quite sure how they'll do it it's not going to matter because the bigger picture is that we're going to do 95 we're probably going to do this for three years when the qt time bomb goes off i don't know it's not a science but it's just when I see the mechanics of the system, that's kind of how it's headed. Exactly when I wish I knew, but I, I just weren't. That's something you, I would keep in mind as a tail risk scenario. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, uh, Joseph, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, people can follow your work on FedGuy.com. Your Twitter handle is at FedGuy12. Your, your book is Central Banking 101. Uh, people, don't forget to subscribe. And by the way, Joseph, People will want to subscribe because next Tuesday, we're speaking to someone on Twitter who knows a lot about the money markets, and that is DC Analyst. Joseph, you've been you know, uh, collaborating with DC Analyst. Tell us a little bit about their analysis and you know, why it's so special that we're getting them on. So DC Analyst is one of the best uh, money markets short-end strategists on Twitter. So when I was at the Fed, I, I read strata, work from all the strategists across the street, and I can tell you that DC is just as good as any of them. Uh, he's a, you know, has a very impressive work, and you know I've actually never seen him or met him in real life. But I guess we'll figure it out next week. Uh, uh, I think this is probably going to be his first podcast, so I guess the Twitter community in general will actually figure out uh, more about who DC analyst is. So definitely come and join us. Yes, wonderful. Well, Joseph, thank you so much, and thank you everyone for watching. Uh, stay tuned for our talk with DC analysts next Tuesday, probably at 2, 3, or 4 p.m., sometime in the afternoon, Eastern time. Thanks, everyone.